Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad to have you with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. All good martinis today. Uh, A couple of them uh, in relation to the primaries that we watched last night. But the first one comes to us, Jim, from the Department of Homeland Security. They don't think this is a good martini, I'm sure, but we do. It appears the Orwellian Disinformation Governance Board is on life support at best and about to be headed to the ash heap of history at best. So the Washington Post and the uh, reporter here is Taylor Lorenz. Okay, ready for that. Uh, So they say April 27th, uh, DHS announced the creation of the first disinformation governance board. That was Secretary Mayorkas uh, in front of Congress. Now, she says, just three weeks after its announcement, the disinformation governance board is being paused, quote unquote, according to multiple employees at DHS, capping a back and forth week of decisions that changed during the course of reporting the story. On Monday, DHS decided to shut down the board, according to multiple people with knowledge of the situation. By Tuesday morning, Nina Jankowitz had drafted a resignation letter in response to the board's dissolution. But Tuesday night, Jankowitz was pulled into an urgent call with DHS officials who gave her the choice to stay on, even as the department's work was put on hold because of the backlash it faced. Working groups within DHS focused on Miss, dis, and malinformation have been suspended. The board could still be shut down pending a review from the Homeland Security Advisory Council. And Jankowitz is now still evaluating her position within uh, the department. Of course, the DHS is saying that Nina Jankowitz has been subjected to unjustified and vile personal attacks and physical threats. And on and on it goes. Uh, They say the secretary has repeatedly defended her as eminently qualified and underscored the importance of the department's disinformation work. I know how I interpret the department's disinformation work, Jim. I don't know about you, but uh, it it looked like this thing had uh, nails in the coffin as of Monday. It looks like it's still got a faint pulse right now, but uh, hopefully this is headed where we think it is. Yeah, clearly it will not exist in the initially announced form, and it may not exist in, in much of a form at all. What's kind of really fascinating about this is the way in which this story has been released because you can kind of see, wow, they are really in trouble. This looks really bad. Many of us pointed out that even if you wanted to fight foreign disinformation, stuff from Russia, stuff like that, or uh, coyotes who are telling people the U.S. is permitting permisos uh, and allowing people into the country and things like that, that could be handled by other agencies. The State Department has an organization whose specific job is to find foreign disinformation about the United States and push back against that. The fact that this is at the Department of Homeland Security and the fact that this is a law enforcement agency means this is aimed at domestic, quote, misinformation or disinformation, and that that is going to run up against some serious First Amendment issues. There was Beckett Adams who first, you know, who noticed and observed, if you want the story to be something about right wings attacks, as opposed to the deeply unflattering and true story about bad decisions at DHS, a totally unqualified person running a poorly conceived disinformation board, of course you give Taylor Lorenz the scoop. And it isn't just crazy right-wingers, Josh Barrett. Like, everybody looked at this and said, oh my God, like this is not what's happened at all. And I think this is why Taylor Lorenz has become such an infamous figure in, in journalism circles, because there are a lot of reporters, you'll read something, you'll be like, ah, yeah, that's kind of a spin, or that's kind of leaning one way or the other. Only in the case of Lorenz does like things get totally flipped because in the heart of this story, Greg, 
it's like the Biden administration encountered right-wing disinformation, you know, and they said, oh, well, we can't fight this. Oh, well. <laughs> and, they just, and they just give up. Oh, well, you know, oh, so somebody in our, you know, like, oh, you know, this person is getting criticized by conservatives on the Internet. Well, we have no choice but to shut this thing down. If that were the case, there would not be a Biden administration, right? You think Mayorkas would still be in the job? You think uh, Vice President Harris would still be in the job? Do you think anybody in this uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, right? Oh, well, you know, right-wingers are criticizing her on the internet. Well, we got to close up shop. No, that's not the way they operate at all. Well, the way this operates is that uh, the, you know, Jenkowitz and the rest of it put themselves in a position where this was always going to be very tough to justify. It was always going to brush up against, at minimum brush up, if not stretch into infringement on First Amendment rights. And then if you're going to have this board and you wanted to have something in the Department of Homeland Security tracking disinformation and promoting, they kept saying, well, we're going to promote best practices, but they never said what those best practices were. And it certainly gave off the vibe of the best practice was for the U.S. government to go to Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you know, whatever platform was hosting the so-called disinformation and say, well, that shouldn't be on the Internet. You should take that down. And we're not going to make you take that down because that would be unconstitutional. But we're the U.S. government. Notice our badges and notice our guns. We're strongly encouraging you to take this down. But it's entirely your choice, Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or Instagram or something like that. Um and then if you're going to have it, the absolute last person in the whole wide world you should appoint is Nina Jankowitz because it doesn't strengthen your argument when they come in the form of show tunes. Uh, this, <laughs> she, she was a self-evidently absurd figure who, you know, it's, you know, it, there's this line in the article, Jankowitz has not spoken publicly about her position since the day it was announced. I can't imagine, unless someone above her was saying, no, you cannot make any public appearances. You cannot do any interviews. You cannot say anything about what you do, how you see your job, what your objectives are, and what your board is going to do. That's conceivable somebody above her saw what a liability she was and said, no, 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 you're not going anywhere near a camera. Your, your existing social media accounts are a liability enough. You're not making this any worse. You be quiet. Or she herself decided not to. I don't know what the, what the thinking there was. But I think it's safe to say no one at DHS thought, you know what, if we put Jankowitz out in front of cameras, She'll explain what she wants to do, and this will this will straighten everything out. This will calm everybody down. No, <laughs> you know, even if she went out and did her quite literal song and dance, uh, it was not going to make calm things down or make anybody feel any better for this. And I think what it is, is this was a poorly conceived idea. They put the absolute worst person possible in charge of it. Saw what a disaster this was turning into in a year when the the administration is facing already facing a terrible uh, midterm election year. Cut their losses, yank, pull the plug, and that's that. And now it's like, well, how do we make it sound like we're the ones who were in the right all along? And all these bad people, these conservatives on the internet, well, let's give the story to Taylor Lawrence. She'll write whatever we tell her to write. At least that's the vibe that certainly comes through in this article. Because it doesn't mention anything Jankowitz has said or done that has been secret. Oh, by the way, her, you know, she's not a distinguished or okay person. The bulwark of all places did this fantastic report looking at her press reporting on European disinformation and pointing out the stuff she got wrong. She was always a terrible choice for this. And somewhere in the Biden administration or DHS, they realized it. And they realized, you know what? This is not going to get any better. This is like Adam Gase coaching the Jets. There's, there's no like, oh, this will turn itself around. Cut their losses, let her go. I mean, maybe she'll keep on in some capacity. But uh, 
And that's, you know, and it's a big, important win for the First Amendment, big, important win for the for conservatives, big, important win for really, that's a libertarians, anybody who does not want the federal government to get into the business of policing speech on the Internet. Um, and it's kind of laughable that they've trotted out Taylor Lorenz to put out this lame spin. Yeah the stenographer for the DNC over there at the Washington Post. Uh, yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting to see what the lesson learned is by this administration. I fear that the lesson they learn is don't tell anyone you're doing this, but <laughs> your point is the more important one and that a lot of disparate political interests banded together to uh, very loudly explain what a horrible idea this was, and at least temporarily, they got a big win. Yeah, I mean, at some point, if you try to do this in the background or secretly or low profile, sooner or later, you you know, the government says to a social media company or some media company, well, you shouldn't have that out there. That's bad. That's dangerous. That's it's disinformation. And at some point, the media company will, they'll hit something the media company doesn't want to take down. You know, it's it some neo-Nazis posting on Facebook or something. Okay, Facebook's going to say, hey, no problem. Take that down. And then at some point, it'll be... I don't know, somebody's analysis of immigration or transsexual rights, or at some point you'll hit something where somebody will be like, eh, actually, I don't like the government telling me I have to take that down. It will leak and it'll blow up as another case of uh, the Biden administration attempting to work around the First Amendment. Uh, it seems like everybody's got their guard up for this now. So uh, hopefully the right lesson has been learned. Uh, speaking of learning excellent lessons, getting quality products at a great price is one we always want, and especially in inflationary times. And that's why my pillows buy one, get one BOGO extravaganza is coming at the perfect time. Uh, you can get great pricing on things like the MyPillow bed sheets as low as $59.98, Elegance MyPillows as low as $49.98. And again, you get two for that price. The Roll and Go Anywhere MyPillows from $29.98, and the fantastic six piece towel sets for $79.98. Now, listeners, you've been hearing me talk about the Roll and Go Anywhere MyPillow, but I feel like it's time for a pop quiz about the six piece towel sets. I've told you this about this before. The question is, how well do you remember it? Where is the cotton used in these towels grown? I won't go through the whole Jeopardy theme. You know it right here in the United States. Now, other towels might feel good, but they don't absorb well, or they absorb well, but they don't really feel good on your skin. They get that lotiony feel. Every MyPillow towel is made from proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent and soft to the touch. Every set comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. They're available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. Love, love, love the towels. The washcloths, the hand towels, the bath towels, all of them top quality, and they hold up great wash after wash. It is a buy one, get one free extravaganza at MyPillow.com slash martini. The bed sheets and MyPillows are just the tip of the iceberg. Find the full list of BOGO offers by visiting MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. Stock up with buy one, get one free savings today and get Mike's book for free with any purchase. MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. MyPillow.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our second good martini and that deals with uh, primary night. We still don't know some things. Most prominently, who's going to be the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania right now with about 95% of the vote in. Uh, Dr. Oz has about a 2,500 vote lead over McCormick. Uh, Kathy Barnett, uh, 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 
quite a bit back. So she, she's not in contention to win the primary anymore. Still some outstanding votes. Not exactly sure how that's going to shake out, but a very, very tight Republican race. Uh, John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor who just had a, a stroke, easily wins the Democratic primary, carried every county in the state which uh, is leading to some uh, people commenting tongue-in-cheek on Twitter, Jim, of course, that if it is Dr. Oz as the Republican nominee, you're going to have a renowned heart surgeon against a heart patient uh, for the uh, for the U.S. Senate seat this year. Obviously, we, we hope everybody's perfectly healthy as this campaign goes on, uh, but we'll see. We'll see how the, uh, the results uh, finish out there in Pennsylvania. The other big headline at the moment, although another House uh, incumbent, uh, a Democrat, is in big trouble out in Oregon, uh, Kurt Schrader, although it looks like he's losing to a person who's even further to the left. But for the Republicans, Madison Cawthorn, who, of course, was the subject of a number of uh, videos coming out lately uh, of very odd, bizarre, sexually related behavior with staffers and, and other people over the years. Uh, anyway, uh, a lot of it piled up in a short period of time, and he was defeated by Chuck Edwards by uh, about a point and a half there in North Carolina's 11th congressional district. So, Jim, I think it's accurate to say that your analysis of this is that it's probably good news for the Republican Party in this year's midterm elections, and it's probably good news really long-term for Madison Cawthorn himself. I was going to say, obviously, once again, we hope everyone nothing but the best of health in the Senate primary. Uh, still not clear who the Republican nominee is going to be, but if it does come down to an Oz-Fetterman debate, Oz saying, before we go any further... Uh, it's Lieutenant Governor Fetterman, have you tried beets? That's some <laughs> lovely supplements and nutrients that I think could help you a lot with that. Um, yeah, so uh, this is where some folks could do a na-na-na dance against Madison Cawthorn. Uh, a couple of days ago, the editors of National Review you know, put out a very blunt, clear statement. Madison Cawthorn does not belong in Congress. Uh, but my boss, Rich Lowry, uh, made a point after it was clear last night that Cawthorn was defeated, that we wish him nothing but the best in what he does in the future. Um, he's been through a lot in his life. He's paralyzed. He has, and I also believe, and I think, you know, you see this well beyond the realm of politics, but I think it's clear everywhere. Instant fame is very rarely good for people. And if, you know, Madison Cawthorn wasn't necessarily instant fame, let's just say really rapid fame going from very few people had heard of him. I think probably most people, the first time they saw him was at the Republican convention in 2020. Remember that uh, audience-free, odd presentation they were doing over at a building in Washington, D.C.? I think a lot of people are like, wow, okay, here's a really young guy who's, you know, an inspiring story of overcoming adversity and who uh, really could be this, you know, quite literally young, fresh face in Congress, the voice of a new generation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's very safe to say Madison Cawthorn did not have the maturity needed for the job. Early troubling sign when he said that he believed that his entire staff should be communications because the job of a congressman in the modern era was just communications. And I'm afraid that's not it. Uh, no, the job of a congressman involves a lot more than just appearing on Fox News or something like that. You have to do constituent service. There are little old ladies who didn't get their social security check who you have to help out. There are local industries that are worried about legislation. There are going to be like close to a half a million people in a congressional district. And they want their congressmen to do all kinds of things, not just say, you know, uh, eye-catching or shocking or incendiary things on cable news programs. And I think it's pretty clear that Madison Cawthorn got a little too big for his britches. You can insert a joke about how the cocaine orgies are now back on schedule again. Um, but I think that was a good example of, you know, he made a lot of enemies in the North Carolina Republican Party. Um, even if you haven't always liked anybody, you generally don't see members of the same party representing uh, parts of the same state 
going at war with each other. In other words, if you're Madison Cawthorn, it doesn't matter if you think Tom Tillis is a squish. You need to work with you. You want to have your a Republican senator from your state, you know, working with you on priorities, not working against him. And Cawthorn didn't seem to recognize that. Um, Tom Tillis then decided to put a whole as many resources to endorse his rivals and to to go after that. And Cawthorn's you know recent comment, or the comment about the the cocaine orgies. Look, if you're gonna, you know, like, you, it's one thing for some schmo to say, yeah, I think you know members of Congress are are you know worshiping Satan in the basement or something like that. But it's if you're a member of Congress, you have to be more responsible about what you say, and you can't just BS the way you're used to before you were in Congress. People are going to take you seriously. So we made people, you know, our listeners probably remember McCarthy calls him to his office and says, okay, well, what did you see? At least according to McCarthy, it was like I once saw somebody in the back of a, of a parking garage do something. Although last night it dawned on me, Greg, is it possible the whole time Madison Cawthorn thought Cocaine Mitch was a real nickname? <laughs> I'm just picturing Mitch McConnell looking like Tony Montana or something like that. But yeah, so you know, it just seemed uh, almost like this immature prankster persona. Um, and it just was not what voters of that district really needed. Uh, this, you know, hopefully Madison Cawthorn can do other things with his life. Who knows? Maybe he'll come back into politics someday. But I think he has some growing up to do. I think it'd be good for him to have some experience outside of the political realm. And I think fame, that the fame that, that being in Congress gives you has not been good for him. And uh, hopefully he will have a more stable end to his congressional career and hopefully better uh, more calming and more peaceful things are in store for him in the future. Um, there, are a lot, there are certain times when somebody leaves Congress, it's, you know, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord splits you, you know, good riddance, et cetera. But I, I, I hope Madison Cawthorn has a happy, successful, and stable life from here on out because his time in Congress did not offer that. Yeah. And a good point also, Jim, about the importance of constituent service. I don't know what his level of constituent service was. Uh, that's not usually something that makes headlines, but that is a huge part of the job. Uh, you know, growing up in Michigan, most of my life, we had Carl Levin as a senator. And he won by overwhelming margins, even though he's one of the most liberal senators out there. And so once I got old enough, I started asking people, why does this guy win so easily? He's not exactly uh, a middle of the road guy and Michigan's not that much of a hard left state. And they said constituent service. His staff is on top of everything. And people remember that more than how you vote on certain things. All right, Jim, on to our third and final uh, good martini. And it also relates to the primaries. So whether your particular candidate won in, in the particular primaries that you cared about, uh, there's good news for conservatives all the way around here in terms of voter turnout and enthusiasm compared to 2018, uh, when 857,000 Republicans roughly showed up for the uh, Pennsylvania primaries. This year, 1.4 million. That's a growth of 543,000. That's a huge increase. And for the first time, they say, uh, in uh, I think over a decade, re more Republicans showed up uh, than Democrats. Now, Republicans had both a competitive governor's race and a uh, competitive Senate race. And the Democrats had a uh, unopposed candidate for governor, but still a huge, huge change in, in the state of Pennsylvania. In North Carolina, uh, 150,000 vote advantage for uh, for the Republicans there. So uh, definitely looking like uh, enthusiasm is on the side of the GOP. And in some of these critical swing states like Pennsylvania, like North Carolina, like Ohio, and some of these others that we're going to be seeing coming down the pike, uh, if you can get that much of an enthusiasm advantage, uh, that can uh, definitely not only lead to winning the races you need to win, you might get some bonus uh, uh, surprise wins at the end of the day too. Yeah, I was going to say, 
you know, if Democrats want to say, well, you guys have more competitive, more interesting primaries going on in your side in these states, then there's a certain amount of defense of that. Um, the, the, you know, in Pennsylvania, Fetterman looked like he had this thing locked up uh, a good while back, whereas, you know, people kind of sensed that the Pennsylvania Republican primary in the Senate was uh, neck and neck. Um, similar story in the uh, Ohio primaries, but this also is what we've been seeing in polls for a long time. You always see this factor in, in, in traditionally. A new president wins, often they have the majority and they start doing stuff and their grassroots generally get complacent. Uh, they're asked like, well, our guys are in charge, so everything's fine. We're going to be okay. Whereas the other side's like, ah, can you see what those dirty so-and-sos are up to? Ah, can you believe they're doing this? Uh, you know, and that's what gets people really fired up and excited. And that's what, you know, energizes the grassroots. And in addition to seeing what is, you know, this kind of pattern this year, you've got an economy, high inflation, high gas prices, high food prices, an insecure border, all of these other issues that are generating people's, you know, getting people really paying attention and tuned into this. And if you're a Democrat, you're probably a little dispirited. You're, you're probably not all that excited. You're not all that impressed with what the Democrats are doing, even if you don't want Republicans to take over. And if you're a Republican, you're mad as heck and you're ready to do a John McClain and march barefoot across broken glass because you're really going to vote against these guys and you really want to elect you the Republicans you want to see in office. So this dynamic we've seen now in Ohio and in Pennsylvania and in New and North Carolina, three big Senate races that year. Does this mean Republicans are guaranteed to win Senate races in this state? No, not, it's not guaranteed, but uh, it is it's interesting to see how it does seem to be lining up with this. And Democrats, I think like the turnout in Philadelphia wasn't like 21% or something. It was really kind of meh um, or worse by traditional standards. And so, Greg, you probably remember. Remember when uh, the new Georgia elections law was uh, worse than Jim Crow? Yes. Jim Eagle, right? It was a bit of atrocity, <laughs> President Biden. Well, the early vote is now smashing records by a major margin. I think like 150% of 2020 and like 170% or 180% of 2018. So for a voter suppression bill, it's doing a terrible job. Um, you know, so, uh, so you look at this and, you know, you're like, okay, so it's what we would expect to see. Republicans are fired up. Democrats are not. You know, this will change probably a little bit between now and November, but there's not a reason to think that's going to be dramatically different, which is one more indicator. This is going to be a red wave year and who knows, maybe a red tsunami. Yeah, a lot to watch, a lot to watch. And all the Democrats have is apparently labeling every Republican candidate as MAGA and ultra MAGA. That's all they've got is trying to tie every Republican candidate to uh, Donald Trump. That's not going to work. They have to come up with some sort of defense, which there isn't one, uh, for the performance of the Democrats in Washington. So uh, they're flailing and uh, it shows. And I don't think that strategy is going to work, but we'll see. Uh, I was just about to say, are they sure calling people ultra MAGA is going to hurt them? <laughs> You sure? Just checking. That means your arsenal's pretty empty at that point. But uh, we will we will keep watching and see who wins in Pennsylvania and uh, in a lot of these states coming up. So, Jim, have a great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and please tell a friend about us as well. Uh, thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Find us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday and please join us on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Mm -hmm.
This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. The left would, of course, counter and say, well, listen, the, the sort of political establishment swindled everyone into paying these really high rates. So, in fact, it's just to sort of forgive this illegitimate uh, debt to begin with. But, you know, you're sort of stripping people of their own agency and decision making powers um, in, in order to make that argument. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 